You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Suffering from aches and pains? The all-new Tempur-Pedic Adapt Mattress eases your pressure points all night, every night. Now, save up to $500 on select adjustable mattress sets at TempurPedic.com. Select adjustable mattress sets only. Lesser savings may apply. I can't believe I just spent the past hour speaking with a 102-year-old doctor. She's been practicing medicine for 80 years, and she gives her six secrets her own personal secrets, plus the, so many stories from patients over the past 80 years, her secrets for health and happiness. She wrote a book, The Well-Lived Life, 102-year-old doctors, six secrets to health and happiness at every age. Her name is Gladys McGarry. She's an MD. She's still practicing. I think I want to hire her as a life coach, actually, and you'll see why after you listen to this episode. We learned so many things. I hope you enjoy it. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. First of all, I just want to say, Dr. Gladys McGarry, it is such an honor to be talking to you. I'm so happy you agreed to come onto the show. But now I have to hear, I, I, I understand you and Jay were discussing coconut time, and I need to know what that is. You want me to tell you? <laughs> I very much want you to tell me. All right. My brother, we found out in Bali, there was a, a wedding that was going to be in three days. And nobody was doing anything. Everybody was doing just their own thing and sitting around. And my sister-in-law finally just got upset and said, why don't you start doing something, getting ready? They said, no, we're working on coconut time. And she said, what in the world is coconut time? They said, when the coconut is ripe, it'll drop. So the next day, the wedding went off, and there wasn't one hitch in the whole wedding. The whole wedding was so smooth that my, we've, we've called it coconut time since. Can I ask you about that? Because that sort of implies a certain faith that things will just, in general, not always, but in general, work out. And it's hard sometimes to have that faith. Oh, sure it is. You have to work at it. You know, it's not something that automatically happens unless you think, oh, well, this fits into coconut time and you put it there. There are certain things that are, so, in my opinion, are divinely orchestrated because they go so far beyond my <laughs> extension of what I know. I mean, there are things that are so far out that you have no control over them, know, even know that they exist. But in coconut time, there are all those things going on. And when they are right, and when they happen, then they happen and it's everything's all right. So, I mean, it's a very comforting way. <laughs> well, if you live long enough, it's a comforting way to get to that point. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. So you've been practicing medicine, even a doctorate in the medical field for 80 years. And yeah. I have to admit, they initially told me that you were experienced as a doctor and a medical professional. So I was thinking maybe more like 90 years or 100 years, but 80 years, okay, you're mildly experienced and you know a thing or two. <laughs> uh, but I like how you, so much of your practice and the stories in the book, The Well-Lived Life, so many of the stories involve stories like what you just told me about coconut time yes. and how sometimes if people have, let's say, bronchitis or arthritis or, or or a cold, that there's something else going on in their life that they're not either releasing some anger or they're not spending their energy wisely. And then when they talk about these things and they start to release these things or, or spend their energy more carefully or set boundaries or whatever, they start to feel better. And how did you come to this 
part of your medical practice? Like what was the the triggers or, or were you always like thinking like this? Well, I had the privilege of living with parents who were both doctors in India. And that, you know, you start out with people who are, their whole life is dedicated to helping other people. I mean, they were there in the jungles of North India, working with the people out there. Where they could have been here in the States and killing a, a fortune or whatever. That's not what they wished to do. And for me, that's the way life should have been, where you start out, you work, do what you can with the people that you're working with, and life gets very good. And so it, it for me, it was an, a way of thinking and doing and living. And the thing that works for me, to answer your question, the reason we started the American Holistic Medical Association is because when I was in medical school, well, I started medical school in September of 1941 and graduated and left in, and the World War II started in December, okay? So my whole education was during the war. So everything that we learned was focused towards killing and getting rid of disease and pain. And after I got out into the practice, I realized that that was still what was happening. And actually, to this day, that's what conventional medicine is still focused on. It's great. It needs to be done. It's, it's absolutely there. But there's a dimension when, when, when a group of us physicians who were thinking this way got together, we realized we knew a lot about the body. We knew a lot about the mind. But where was the essence of what we were doing? Where was the spirit? Where was the reason for being physicians? And it wasn't there. And so we started the American Holistic Medical Association to bring the spirit back into the medicine. But then it took us two years to decide how to spell holistic because we finally realized that the root word we were talking about was healing and holy. Hmm. So bringing that element back in to the whole field of medicine gave us stability to move forward in our thinking. And it's not that there's anything wrong with conventional medicine, except that it's just missing something. Do you think, and I don't want to be like conspiratorial, but a lot of people say that one of the reasons medicine has turned more towards diagnose and prescribe, diagnose and prescribe, is because pharmaceutical companies essentially, again, I hate this kind of talk. No, I, just I, have to ask. I, I know where you're going and I agree. But like pharmaceutical companies, you know, wine and dine them and pay them and give them incentives to prescribe certain drugs. And then they see the next patient. So they're churning out, they make a lot of money that way. And I, I don't blame them. You have to take ownership as a patient, but then they'll make fun of you for saying something like holistic. The word holistic is, you know, <laughs> a, a taboo word in medicine. <laughs> It used to be, it isn't in my world. And the beautiful thing is, I mean, it really used to be bad. I mean, I was brought up to the authorities, medical authorities here, because of the things that I was saying and doing. But now that's really shifted and shifted enough that about 15 years ago, I was in the grocery store pushing my cart around and I heard over the PA system, the hardware store down the street calling itself a holistic hardware store. So I stopped my cart and I said, well, we've gotten that far now. Now we have to come up with another name. And so now what I'm calling it is living medicine because living medicine brings life and love into the whole practice of medicine and lifts it to another dimension. It does not eliminate the conventional medicine. In fact, is it okay for me just to freewheel like this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to freewheel the entire time. Okay. Well, my oldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. So when he'd gotten all of his training and he came through Phoenix and he was going down to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice, he said, Mom, you know, I'm real scared. I'm going to go into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. He said, I don't know if I can handle that. 
And I said, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, you have a right to be scared. But if you can understand that your job is to do this amazing practice of orthopedic surgery, which is just an amazing ability that you have, and you can do that for the patient and then support the patient as they do their own healing, because the healing has to be done individually by the physician within each patient. Because it doesn't matter what I tell a patient to do or what I tell them not to do. If they don't do it, it's not going to happen. If I tell them what I think they should do and they take that, then it's their responsibility to carry on. I mean, I can tell them not to eat onions. It'll make them sick or something. And they'll say, oh, no, I'm going to eat them anyway and eat onions and get sick. I mean, my second son can't eat onions. If he eats onions, he gets sick. It's an individual life that we live. It's our responsibility. I agree with that. But you look at like people's psychology and I, I look at my own. So at an extreme case, everybody knows that smoking on average reduces six years of your life or some number, and yet people smoke. But more subtly, and you, you refer to many instances in your book, being angry and not forgiving could reduce years in your life. You, you have many examples of somebody who can't get rid of some old anger, some chronic anger, and it shows up in the form of some, I don't know, an abdominal obstruction or bronchitis or some illness. And those are hard to give up, angers and stresses. We kind of get addicted to them, I guess, the same way somebody gets addicted to cigarettes. Well, they are hard to give up because we experience them. It's like, you know, if you have a, if you have a cut and it forms a scab and it's on your arm, and every time you look down, you scratch that scab and scratch that scab. It hurt, keeps on hurting. It kind of hurts good. You know, I mean, it reminds you that you, you hurt. Okay, this hurts. But if you leave it alone and let it heal, you can look at that and say, oh, I remember you. You know, it's that kind of a, of a choice that we make. See, I think one of the things we really need to look at again and again, and that is blaming ourselves or other people for what it is that we think and what we do. It's just what life does. You know, there's something to learn by everything that we see and do and, and work with, because there, there are lessons all around us if we look at them. And as we begin to really engage with life as it is, like we're doing right now. I mean, this is a moment in time which will never happen again, never happened before. It's that precious moment in time which we are, I think, using to help other people in this moment in time to grasp the importance of what time and life is all about. And that the way we work with it, see, I, I happen to love talking. You know, I don't, I can't, I don't write very well. But I like talking. I so this is fun for me. All right. Me too. Yeah. That's why you do it. Yes. I feel I used to be not, and this is a hard thing to admit, but I used to be not as angry as I am now. Like sometimes in the morning, sometimes every morning, I'll wake up and I'll think about someone who was once close to me who did something that made me angry and I'll never know why and I'll never understand it. And I can't help thinking about these things and what I would say to them if I saw them. It like just pops up in the mind, like, you know, like a craving for junk food. It's the same kind of craving. And how do you, or how have you gotten yourself over those situations? Well, you know, the second secret I have addresses that because we all have that. You're not alone in that. All of us have spots like that, because there's some people who really get on our nerves and actually do things that hurt us. We get hurt by each other. And sometimes we hurt other people. But those are things that happen, and we can build on them and keep hanging on to them, like I said, with a scab. Or we can do, because life itself 
has to move. It's always in motion. Like the next moment is the next moment. And as you do that, if you're moving towards the light, things get more clear. They're less heavy. The load isn't as hard. But if you want to keep on carrying this heavy load of of what this person did to you, it's it's very difficult to get on. That's why the second uh, secret is that life has to move. It can get stuck. And if it gets stuck, that's our choice. And we can hang into that. But it'll, it'll, it'll kill the life force within us. But if we actually look at that issue, whatever that issue is, and sort of do what my mother did, which we call, she called kuchpalwani, which means it doesn't matter. You take the issue that's there, the person, the the whatever it was, and you hold it in the palm of your hand and hold your hand up like this and then say, it doesn't matter, and let it drop. But it's a choice. And when you let it drop, you can either go back and pick it up again, and by now it's dirty and messy and stuff, and or you can just say, oh, yeah, well, I yeah, it's gone. But it doesn't mean you forget it. It doesn't mean there isn't a scar there. We're doing a lot of work with people with ambiguous loss, you know, losses that they've had. They don't really remember, but it's it scarred them. I, I've worked with that personally, I mean. Like what's an example from your life? To having to repeat first grade twice because I was a class dummy. I can't believe that actually. I think you're. I think well, you're. I think true. you're lying to me. You. Are, they told me you were a liar, so I don't know. <laughs> well, that's what they call me too. But um, it's no. Before I went to school, life was perfect. I was with my friends in the jungles and playing with people, doing whatever I wanted to do. And then I started school, and although I knew the alphabet and I knew uh, uh, numbers and all. When I started to read, they were all over the place. I could not read. I couldn't read what was on a page. And so it was just, I was the class dummy. Interestingly enough, when we started the American Holistic Medical Association, one day there were 10 of us doctors sitting on a, around the table. And I brought this dyslexia thing up. And six of the 10 of us were severely dyslexic. So we looked at each other and we said, well, maybe that's why we were able to see another dimension in what was needed. Because, you know, I don't know how I learned to read. Honest, Jack, I don't know how I learned to read. But it's interesting. Maybe it gave you, because learning to read was more challenging for you and your colleagues that, that you mentioned, Maybe that gave you sort of a fighting spirit that you learned this muscle, this fighting spirit that, that right. many people don't learn. Like if someone learns, if everything comes easy to somebody, they don't quite learn that that toughness, which really helps in a moment by moment basis. I think I think in some ways I am tough in some ways and not tough in other ways. And it's hard sometimes when you realize the areas where you're not tough. That's right, because that's your learning process. In fact, there's some. As we were kids, my sister, who was two years older than me, we were in our 90s. And she tells me that she was really jealous of me when I was young, when we were younger, because I could hang by my knees and she tried and tried and tried and she couldn't do it. And she said, why do you think you could hang by your knees and I couldn't? And I said, well, I guess I was looking for another dimension or an, another way of looking at life, or something like that. <laughs> I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because 
of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip Recruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter. And I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails, like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, everybody has problems. Everyone lives through their own hardships and so on. You were a teenager during the Great Depression and years of 20% unemployment and banks failing and businesses failing and people hungry. Then you were started to be an adult when the world was at war and in the beginnings of the nuclear bomb and the Cold War. Like, just tell me a little about your life. Like, what? What was it like as a teenager in the Depression? There's nobody I could talk to who could answer this question right now. Well, I can tell you, uh, we came to the United States during the Depression and couldn't go back to... My parents had a furlough. Every seven and a half years, they came to the States and then went back to India. But during the Depression, we were here in the States and we couldn't get back. We were in Kansas. We were living there in a house that was fine for us but and it was okay because everybody was having trouble everybody was going without things in fact my mother 
who was a physician, started a little side job because we needed more money than we were cut coming in. And she started ordering non-alcoholic vanilla extract. <laughs> and then she had us kids go around the, to the neighborhood and sell this. It was not a big deal, except it was a big deal because it fit into where we were and we needed that much more money. And I went to this one place and when I was saying we were selling this, the kid that came to the door was a classmate of mine in a family who was actually not as in as much difficulty as we were. And he began really laughing at me and saying, well, you're just, a, you know, you're going around begging and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that kind of thing. There still was something that the people who didn't have anything were reaching to other people to help give to us. And there were those who made it fun of it, but there were those who worked with it. Life was going on. And even this, because we were in Kansas, and Kansas was, you know, they, you could have non-alcoholic vanilla extract for crying out loud. Well, did you order it from like a foreign country or did they make it here? Uh, no, my mother found some, I don't know where she found that. But, you know, you look for, if you're looking for something, you find it. See, that's the key. If you're not looking for it, you can see it pile up there and all this trouble and all these things and all this pain and all. But if you are looking there and you see a bit of light and you say, oh, now that's interesting. And you begin to follow the light instead of some awful thing that's happening. Let's say right now, okay, we're not going through a depression, but there's economic hardship out there. And oh, yeah. let's say somebody loses their job, also gets divorced at the same time, is dealing with medical issues. And they think to themselves, gosh, I just haven't had anything good happen to me for a really long time. And I don't know how to change that. And you see that they're actually like physically getting ill, perhaps because of these emotions. What would you say to a person like that? I'd say start looking for what's working, not for what's not working for you. And it may be just some little thing like the vanilla extract. I mean, it's not the looking for the big money dumped on you so now you have money and you can do everything. It doesn't work that way. When you're particularly when there's a, a, a depression when the whole world around you is having trouble with having enough money to to pay the bills and to do the things that need to be done, then you start looking for little things that you can do. And it's amazing what shows up. But if you're not looking for them, they're not there. They're absolutely not there if you're not looking for them. It's like walking down a path with a flashlight. If you're walking down a path with a flashlight, your steps are directed by the light that you are using. When the light goes forward, you step forward. It's that kind of a movement where our whole being can work together moment by moment and find something. And something it's, you know, maybe you just need to plant a plant for people who are elderly, whatever that means, in, in a home, if they at least have a plant that they can water and work with, it gives them something to live for. You refer to this in the book, like you have a, one of your secrets. And so I should say the subtitle of The Well-Lived Life is 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. And one of the secrets is you are never alone. alone. And some yes. people do feel alone. Like say their significant other passes away or child passes away or friends move to another town. Or you say something interesting, which is try to find the friend in everyone and maybe you could describe what that means. Well, you know, uh, it just means what it says. If if the woman at a grocery store is your friend, she's there because she's your friend, not because she's had to work or whatever problem she's having. But if you choose that she's your friend, then you treat her like your friend. 
So if it's totally a choice, you know, you can live in a friendly world with unfriendly people and still treat them sort of like your friends. Sometimes you have <laughs> have your boundaries and say that's enough now and uh, just do a kuchpurwane and move away. But sometimes that person is looking for a friend. And it's like, oh, I love it when you come into the grocery store because, yes, it's that kind of a recognition that my spirit bears witness with thy spirit. There is a connection. And that connection, it can be broken or not, but if you choose, it can continue. And I guess that kind of connection also takes you out of your head a little bit. So let's say you're constantly thinking about your problems, but thinking of a connection you might have, however small, with another person sort of takes you out of your head. So you're not necessarily obsessing on whatever grief you might be going through. That's right. It moves you to a point of where your heart is, you know, because you're looking for a friend. And so I, I like how with a lot of these secrets, you mean it very literally. It's so like when you say, you know, all life is in motion, you're really talking about, or all life is moving. You're really talking about moving. Like you described one person who you even say, when they read a book, they should not just turn the page with their fingers, but move their whole arm. Like you mm -hmm. should move your whole whole body. But now we're all stuck next to these monitors all day long. Like you and I are sitting, talking to each other through monitors. How can we bring motion into even an activity like this? Or like I, I type on the keyboard like all day long. That's what I do. I sit here and type. Well, you know, some people doodle. Some people, and there's nothing wrong with doodling. You have to throw the piece of paper away. Didn't mean anything, but it kept you moving. Maybe you move your feet. Maybe it's just your head, but your body needs to move. Now, another interesting thing is there are times when uh, this happened not too long ago. I think I write about it in the book. A patient is told they needed to rest. And so they thought they just needed to rest. They just lay down and Life went past and they couldn't have anything. Life meant nothing. The fact of the matter is, when a doctor tells you you need to rest, that's doing something. You are resting. You're not just a, a slug that lay down, you know. This is part of the process of getting well at that particular time, is rest. It's like you need to sleep and you need. <laughs> you know, you, you don't need to. I, it's except you really do. <laughs> you know, your body is really saying, no, I need to rest today. I, I just, there's too much going on. I'm going to take a day of rest and I'm just not going to do nothing. But it's a choice. It's something that I need to do at that time. Not all the time. You know, you also talk about resting in the context of your first secret, which is, you know, finding your juice, finding what it is that you love in life and doing that, even if it's different from, even if it doesn't pay the bills and whatever. And you give exercises for how people could find what they love in life. And you have stories about it. Like, can you think of a, a story where someone was doing a job they hated, or maybe they were in a relationship they were unhappy in? And they figured out more what was their juice and that sort of healed their physical ailments. Well, it, it happens. And uh, I can conjure up a patient. I've worked with so many thousands of them, but there are people who come in and they're in that spot. You know, they feel like they have nothing to live for. Uh, this one woman particularly she was in her 60s and retired. Her children were gone and grown, and her husband was working, and she came in. She said, I have nothing to live for. I've done it all. It's done, you know. So we started talking and working back and forth, and finally I said to her, now look, you're sitting there, and I'm sitting here. If I wasn't sitting here, I wouldn't exist. So 
everything that you're doing right now is important to me and makes me important to you. It's that connection that every person that you're working with or dealing with has a relationship with you. What you do with that relationship is your choice. And she got it. By the time she left my office, we had a big hug and she decided her kids are wonderful. I can spend time with my grandkids and that's doing something. So she began to identify the things in her life which really had meaning for her and that she could continue doing in order to continue her life. Her brain had to access the activity of her life so she could do that. It's so interesting how much mindset and perspective really do, like we have a range of possibilities in our health every day. And it's so interesting how perspective helps us define that range, whether we're going to be, whether we're going to be sick or healthy on a, on a certain day. I never really, I mean, I always kind of intellectually knew that mindset played a role, but as you get a little older, you realize how important mindset is to daily health. Yes. Well, you know, for my hundred second birthday, I rode a tricycle in. And the reason I did that is because think of what a tricycle is. It has two back wheels that are vital, and those represent the body, and they're great. But they are totally useless unless they're connected by the frame of the whole tricycle, which connects them to the front wheel, which is the mind. Mm -hmm. But the mind is there because it's the one that takes the direction and goes. The back ones can't do anything until the front one is taking them places. They're just sitting there. However, even the front one can't do anything until somebody climbs onto it and brings in the spirit. So the whole picture of riding a tricycle is basically saying, I'm engaging my whole being in this activity of bringing the what I can see to go to where I want to go and the direction I want to go and carry the whole process along to go there. Did you ever, was there ever a point where you felt you were old? Like when you were 65 years old, did you say, well, I'm old now? Not particularly, but let me tell you a wonderful story. I have a great granddaughter. She had her fifth birthday, okay? And she orchestrated the whole thing. She told her family what, you know, her father was supposed to clean the house. Her mother was supposed to bake the cake. Her younger brother was supposed to do this, that. <laughs> So she, she had her whole birthday party and it came off and she had a wonderful time. And then the morning after the birthday party, she was sitting at the table and she was so, she was down, you know, looking sad. And she said, finally, she looks up and she says to the family, I don't have any more fours left. <laughs> she was now... She's five years old. I don't have any more fours left. Now, you know, it's that kind of a thing that happens to us. And, well, the story goes on. But actually, it's a mindset, you know, and we all get trapped in it sometimes. We have to realize that we can either get trapped and let that part of us die, which it will, or we can say, uh-uh, kuchpurwani. It's that isn't worth giving all this up and I'm moving forward. And this shows in your writing, like there's a very playfulness to a lot of your secrets and, and a lot of the recommendations and a lot of the stories and your, your final secret, the one that you saved for last is invest your energy wildly. And at first when I was reading it, I thought my eyes interpreted wildly as wisely. So for, at first I was saying, oh, yeah. she's saying wisely. That makes sense. 
But then maybe explain what you mean by wildly, because there's a certain playfulness to that. It's, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we struggled with that wildly, wisely, back and forth. If you try to store energy, it doesn't store. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have batteries and store energy and stuff, but not energy. Living energy has to move. So if you try to bank it, or if you think, I'll do this in the future, well, you know, I'll have more energy, or I'll do this, uh, it doesn't work that way. If you live in the moment, you'll use your energy and you'll use it wisely. Maybe, and maybe you'll not. But don't be concerned about using the energy because you're not going to get rid of the energy. You're going to use it. And as you use your energy, you're not storing it. You're not saving it. You're not doing something wonderful with it because it's not going to happen that way. The only way your energy is going to mean anything in your life is when you're using it. And how do you use it wildly? Well, I wouldn't have started the American Holistic Medical Association if I wasn't using it wildly, because I was really a witch doctor and a lot of things. In medical school, the, <laughs> the dean sent me to the psychiatrist two different times, and he sent me back and said, no, it's okay. But it's the knowingness, not just the ability but the knowingness of what you as an individual person are in this whole great jigsaw puzzle of life where every piece is itself a piece and there's nothing else that fits that piece. You can't get another piece and try to fit it into that jigsaw puzzle. I've tried, you know, and it doesn't work. It's, finding what we're here to do, accepting it as the juice of our life. This is what I have to do. It was something that I chose and have moment by moment by moment continued to see myself as the person that is doing the things that I want to do. Well, you've lived through so many experiences and really history. I mean, you're over a century old. Like, did you, first off, did you have 102 candles at your 102nd birthday? You have to blow <laughs> them all out? No. What are some of the most amazing things you've seen in terms of like changes in society and changes in technology? Like what gave you astonishment? Getting up in the morning gives me astonishment. You know, it, the fact that you and I can talk like this. What a wow that is. Yeah. It's something that I cherish. I don't cherish every moment. I mean, sometimes life sucks. It does. But sometimes even that has a lesson that it's like my divorce. But I finally had to realize that what that did was set me free to become myself. Because prior to that, I was Bill and Gladys McGarry. Everything was Bill and Gladys. So, and that was fine with me. I mean, I, that's the way I liked it. I thought that's the way it was supposed to be and so on. But when I was thrown out and I was by myself, I had to claim what I had been talking about and working with. And, and you mentioned in the book, this is one of the hardest things that you've had to deal with. How did you ultimately come to grips with it and deal with it? Well, it was a really long process because I was broken. I really was. That part of me was broken and it just hurt. It was just really, really pain. My practice went, I had to give that up. I had to give up the patients. You know, what I had left was my family, my children who were adults at the time and what I could do. And my daughter and I she was by that time, actually, she had just joined our practice. So she and I started our own practice. So I was able to take it on to that level to keep myself busy. But I didn't really get the pain into context until one day, I mean, this was years later, I was still living out in the desert where we had moved to, well, 
And as I was driving my car, I was really talking to the divine, telling him it just really didn't understand how awful this was. And that really life was painful and I was crying and I was yelling. I mean, I was in the car by myself and I, and finally I pulled over to the side of the road and I stopped and I started thinking. And all of a sudden the, the quote, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I said, all right. My license plate said, be glad then. Remember that from then on, all the time I was in practice, my license plate said, be glad. It was a constant reminder of how glad I was to have lived that long. And then after Bill and I had been divorced, and even after the be glad thing, which I was still working with the pain, I woke up one Sunday morning and realized that I was hanging on to this pain. And was I going to continue doing that? Or was I, did I have an option? And I realized I actually, in my mind, put together the whole context of what I was working with. I had lived this life with Bill McGarry. I'd loved every minute of it. We had done these amazing things together. We'd climbed the pyramid together. We'd been to Cambodia. We'd raised these kids. All of these amazing things. And he and I worked together on the holistic medical thing. All of these things we had done together. And I could either spend my time looking at what we had done together or grieving what I had lost. Well, I finally decided, okay, I'm done with that. I'm not going to grieve that any longer. So now my statement is, I don't regret any moment that Bill and I spent together because I loved him. I still love him. But then he took a vacation. That's his business. Mm. But what he did for me was to give me my business mm. by letting me go. So each one of us has to find out how it works because it works differently for each one of us. And now at the tender age of 102, do you find ever there are things you regret? Like, when was your last regret? I didn't sleep real, really well last night. <laughs> I didn't either. I only slept like one hour last night. No, I mean, things like that. You know, you uh, somehow I was, had stuff, so I didn't sleep too well last night. That's a regret. Mm -hmm. But so, until you brought it up, I didn't even think about it. So, Dr. Gladys McGarry, author of The Well-Lived Life, 102-year-old doctor's six secrets to health and happiness at every age. You live an incredible life, and it's such a blessing that you were able to use that life to devote yourself to healing and the practice of medicine and health and holistic health, and then share these secrets. I will take them to heart. I'm trying to already figure out what things in my life I need to have more motion and, and spend my energy a little more wildly. I feel like I used to spend it more wildly than I do now. And I think I've somehow stalled in investing my energy wildly. That's something for me to think about. Thank you for having me on because, you know, this juices up my life. It's, it's very, very kind of you to have me. No, not at all. I'm glad you, you came on. As soon as uh, I saw your book, I said to Jay, the, the producer, okay, let's call her up. We got a book, Gladys. <laughs> 102 year old secrets to life. We're not going to get this every day. <laughs> I mean, do you ever have like uh, parties with just 100 year old people? No. Like, do you call each other in some club? Well, I guess we could. In yeah. fact, yeah. as I understand, the fastest growing population in the world is the people over 100. Who's the oldest person in the world right now? I think there's a 118 year old woman someplace, I don't know. And you know, medicine, kind of like the technology of medicine, like genomics and editing genes and all these, uh, there's all these studies into anti-aging where they're viewing aging not as just something that happens, but they're treating aging as if it's an illness. And so they're looking at ways to cure aging. And <laughs> it, it seems like an interesting approach. You know, what I'm thinking of aging is aging into health. 
That's what I call it. Because if we're looking to be healthy, we can be healthy. I mean, it may not be healthy. Like I, I can't run up my steps, but I can still go up my steps. I think in many respects, I'm healthier than not. I don't think. I know in many respects, I'm healthier than I was way back when, when I was, you know, dealing with certain illnesses like mumps and stuff like that. Because I, in India, I didn't, we didn't have mumps and chicken pox. I came to the States and my kids had mumps and chicken pox. So I got them when I was an adult. Wow. You know, so you age into health if you choose to age into health. But medicine has forgotten that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's so interesting how just the views on medicine have changed. But as you've mentioned, like even words like holistic are starting to be more accepted. There's less stigma. Yeah. And so hopefully that's a trend that continues, although I, I imagine it's a constant battle with industry. So... Well, I'm, I'm my 10-year plan is, with the help of my community, creating a village for living medicine. For the people who live in that village, their concept is life is love and so on. Wow. Well, I, I hope you succeed in that. Certainly your book really gives a lot of food for thought. Like there's so many ideas and stories and, and real life examples and plus your own experiences. You know, once again, Dr. Gladys McGarry, author of The Well-Lived Life, 102-year-old doctor, six secrets to health and happiness at every age. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Please come on again when you're 103, 104, <laughs> and when your 10-year plan is successful. And we'd love to have you back anytime. And you can contact me at gladysmcgarry.com. Yeah, and, and your book's there, and I'm sure it's available on Amazon and bookstores and, and so on. All right. Thank you once again. Everybody should buy the book because I loved it. So go for it. Thank you, Gladys. Thank you. Thank you. 